of Faith That Obeys Podcast 039, Romans chapter 6. Here's the first scripture we use to argue that water baptism is necessary for salvation. It's Romans 6, 1 through 11. This is a long passage holding wonderful treasures, the first of which harkens back to our lesson about the correct method of baptism. Let's listen to it. Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means! We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a rich passage of Scripture. Let's dissect this verse by verse. Verse 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The first part of this verse addresses a misunderstanding in the early church where some people thought that if they sinned more, God's grace was revealed even more. Paul says, in effect, that dog don't hunt. Stop thinking that way. But notice something. Paul is addressing people who are already saved. How do we know this? Because all of it is in the past tense. He identifies them as people who have, past tense, died to sin. If someone has died to sin, that means that their sins have been forgiven and they are no longer living a life of sin. These are people who have died and been raised again to their new life in Christ. They've been born again. Let's dig a little deeper and ask the critical questions. When did this happen and where did this happen? Paul answers these questions in verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. In this sentence, Paul tells us this death to sin occurred when these people were baptized into Christ. He tells us they were baptized into his death. Ah, two critical truths. First, we get into Christ through something called baptism. And second, we learn this baptism places us into Christ's death. 
These are important truths to understand. There's no other way in all of Scripture to get into Christ or into his death. And to be clear, these are not symbolic things. These are what I like to call reality things, things which are really happening. At the time of baptism, we are put into Christ and into his death by the Holy Spirit. But the process doesn't stop there. We're not left dead and buried, just as Christ was not left dead and buried. Verse 4, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. There's a lot here. This verse begins with the word, therefore. In my early years as a disciple, I was taught that whenever you see the word, therefore, in the scripture, you should always go back a few verses and find out what it is, therefore. So if we do that, we must read verse 4 in light of verses 1 through 3. These people had died with Christ in baptism, been baptized into his death, and baptized into Christ himself. Therefore, they were buried with Christ. How? Through baptism. So, by this thing Paul calls baptism, a person is buried with Christ. But into what? Into death. Why? For what purpose? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, they too could be raised to a new life as well. Now let's flip things on their heads and ask some inverse questions. What happens if I am not baptized into Christ? If I'm not baptized, can I get into his death? If I'm not buried with him through baptism, will I be raised with him? If I'm not raised with him in baptism, can I be ushered into a new life just like Christ was ushered into new life? Now, on the surface, it might seem like the answer to these questions is no, but I don't think that would be dealing honestly with the scripture. The honest answer to these questions is not no. The honest answer is, I don't know. That's the truth. Let me explain. There's a great temptation to say, if I'm not baptized, I cannot be in Christ. But the scriptures do not make that negative claim, do they? They simply state the positive. That's the truth. I think this is one of the ways that pro-baptism proponent shoots himself in the foot. All too often, a pro-baptism proponent can be pretty dogmatic about this erroneous position. The scripture does not say, if you are not baptized, you will not be with Christ. However, the initial statement is so clear and so direct, it would not make sense to consider any other course of action if I wanted to be raised with Christ. So, while the honest answer to the inverse question is not no, rejecting the instruction leaves a vast chasm of doubt and insecurity, especially when we consider what comes next. 
Romans 6.5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. This is a conditional, and it is a huge conditional. The claim begins with if. If we have been united with him like this in his death. Well, how are we united with him like this in his death? By participating in baptism. Is this a metaphor for something? No. This is what happens in baptism. We are united with him in his death. What happens next? We will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. That's awesome. Okay, so what happens if I am not united with him in his death? Do I have any assurance that I will be united with him in his resurrection? No, no promises. The only confidence I can have is if I am united with him in his death. Once again, don't build a false assumption in the absence of the negative. The truth of the positive stands powerfully alone. I love these conditionals because they kind of box us in. They don't leave much wiggle room. Things get tightened down, especially when we ask that inverse question begged by the if statement. Okay, let's move on. Verse 6 and 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Let's start at the bottom and work our way up. I have a surefire way to help us in our quest to never commit another sin. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be awesome if if we never sinned again. All right, here's all we need to do, and I guarantee it will work 100% of the time. All we need to do is die. This is what the scripture tells us. In baptism, we die, and we are therefore free from sin. The Bible uses this imagery a number of times describing Christians as people who have died to their old life. It's quite a picture. So in verse 6 and 7, we learn that baptism is where we die to sin. If we have not died, are we free from sin? Well, it does not say that, but the safe bet would be no. If we have not died, sin is still our master. Well, how did we die? Our old self was crucified with him. How is that possible? We were not at the cross. Our old self was crucified in baptism. That's the subject of these passages. Why are we crucified with Christ? So that the body of sin might be done away with. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're done with sin. It means our sins were wiped away. They're no longer a part of us. We will no longer be slaves to sin because we are dead. Can you think of any other place in 
all of Scripture, where we are taught that sins are rendered powerless by some other means or at some other time in the conversion process outside of baptism. I can't. Romans 6, verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Once again, we see that conditional. The word if is used to establish a clear fork in the road. If I die with Christ, where does that happen? In baptism. If I died with Christ, I believe I will live with him. What if I do not die with Christ? Do I have any confidence at all that I'll live with him? No, I'm on shaky ground. I'm not promised anything. Do I honestly want to be on that road? Why not just obey the command and accept the guarantee? Next, we find a bit of setup for what Paul is about to say. It's Romans 6, 9 through 10. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. This speaks about Christ's resurrection. He's raised from the dead. Death only gets to do its work once. After that, death cannot have control over Christ. Christ died to sin one time for all people. The resurrected life he lives, he lives to God. Now that Paul has that teed up, let's see what he does with it. Verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In the same way as what? In the same way as Christ. Do what? Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Oh, so now we are in Christ. When did that happen? Well, it had to happen sometime between death and resurrection. Where does that happen for a believer? In baptism. Now, let's take a quick detour just for fun. In Romans 6, we learn that we are crucified with Christ and we die. It does not say this is symbolic or a metaphor for anything. It also said we were baptized into his death. This is a great mystery and something which is probably worthy of a lot deeper study. Do people actually die in baptism? Whatever this thing called death actually is, is that what happens to us in baptism? Do we actually experience this thing called death so that we will never experience it again? Death no longer has mastery over someone who has died, right? It only gets to do its job one time. Yeah, this is a bit of a rabbit hole, but sometime we should study this one out. It's very interesting. Romans 6 offers an amazing look at the complete born-again experience. When we submit ourselves to Bible baptism, we are participating in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nowhere in all Scripture do we find such a clear explanation of what happens in baptism. When we allow ourselves to be baptized, we die and we are buried and we are resurrected with Christ. Now, I know the critics are chomping at the bit. 
They claim Romans 6 is not about water baptism. They claim, with great confidence, this is a spiritual baptism. There are two problems with this conclusion. The first problem is the issue posed by Ephesians 4.5, there's only one baptism. In previous studies, we discovered there is indeed only one baptism, but two things are happening. Let me refer you to a Faith That Obeys podcast 29, Multiple Baptisms, for a complete study on that issue. Second, when I ask my evangelical friend if their church baptizes by complete immersion, and they say, yeah, well, my next question is, what scripture would you use to prove that water baptism should be done by immersion and not by sprinkling or pouring? They quickly point to Romans 6. Well, hopefully you see the problem. We can't claim Romans 6 is exclusively a spiritual baptism and then use Romans 6 and claim it is a water baptism too. This scripture is pretty much the go-to scripture for anyone who wants to explain why their church practices full immersion baptisms instead of sprinkling or pouring. The reason it serves this function so nicely is because it graphically depicts baptism as a death, a burial, and a resurrection. As a person is lowered into the water, held there briefly, then raised out of the water. When we accept Paul's Ephesians assertion, there's only one baptism, and we understand that two things are happening in that one baptism, we understand how Romans 6 can be a baptism in water and a spiritual baptism at the same time. It's very easy. In the process of water baptism, a person is lowered into water, completely immersed or buried, and raised again out of the water. In this process, we see something very symbolic happen. We see a death, a burial, and a resurrection. Now, while water baptism contains amazing symbolism, baptism itself is not a symbol of anything. Baptism, as I've stated, is a participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is an act of direct obedience to the Great Commission and the gospel of Christ. Baptism is where and when a sinner is born again. Romans 6 is clearly about baptism, the one baptism which is done in water by the Holy Spirit and places a person into the kingdom of God by allowing them to be crucified with Christ, buried, and resurrected. Baptism is how we execute and obey the Great Commission. Baptism is how we obey the gospel. Baptism is a response which only comes from a faith that obeys. Well, thanks for listening. Join the argument at www.afaiththatobeys.org slash blog.